Section two of Beacon Lights of History, Volume Eight Great Rulers by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Alfred the Great, Part two. Alfred also gave his attention to the construction of a navy as well as to the organization of an army, knowing that it was necessary to resist the Northmen on the ocean and prevent their landing on the coast. In 875 he had fought a naval battle, with success, and had taken one of the ships of the Sea Kings, which furnished him with a model to build his own ships, doing the same thing that the Romans did in their early naval warfare with the Carthaginians. In 877 he destroyed a Danish fleet on its way to relieve Exeter. But he soon made considerable improvement on the ships of his enemies, making them twice as long as those of the Danes, with a larger number of oars. These were steadier and swifter than the old vessels. As the West Saxons were not seafaring people, he employed and munificently rewarded men from other nations more accustomed to the sea, whether Frisians, Franks, Britons, Scots, or even Danes. The result was he never was badly beaten at sea, and before the end of his reign he had swept the coast clear of pirates. Within two years from the Treaty of Wedmore his fleet was ready for action. He was prepared to meet the sea kings on equal terms, and in 882 he had gained an important naval battle over a fleet that was meditating an invasion. In the year 885 the Danes again invaded England and laid siege to Rochester, but fled to their ships on the approach of Alfred. They were pursued by the Saxon king and defeated with great slaughter, sixteen Danish vessels being destroyed and their crews put to the sword. Nor had Guthrun Athelstan, the ex-Viking, been true to his engagements. He had allowed two additional settlements of the Danes on the East Anglian coasts, and had even assisted Alfred's enemies. Their defeat, however, induced him to live peaceably in East Anglia until he died in 890. These successes of Alfred secured peace with the Danes for eight more years, during which he pursued his various schemes for the improvement of his people, and in preparations for future wars. He had put his kingdom in a state of defense, and now turned his attention to legislation, the supremest labor of an enlightened monarch. The laws of Alfred wear a close resemblance to those which Moses gave to the Hebrews, and moreover are pervaded with Christian ideas. His aim seems to have been to recognize in his jurisprudence the supreme obedience which is due to the laws of God. In all the laws of the converted Teutonic nations, from Charlemagne down, we notice the influence of the Christian clergy in modifying the severity of the old pagan codes. Alfred did not aim to be an original legislator, like Moses or Solon, but selected from the Mosaic Code, and also from the laws of Ethelbert, Inna, Offa, and other Saxon princes, those regulations which he considered best adapted to the circumstances of the people whom he governed. He recognized more completely than any of his predecessors the rights of property, and attached great sanctity to oaths. Whoever violated his pledge was sentenced to imprisonment. He raised the dignity of eldormen and bishops to that of the highest rank. He made treason against the royal authority the gravest offense known to the laws, and all were deemed traitors who should presume to draw the sword in the king's house. He made new provisions for personal security, and severely punished theft and robbery of every kind, especially of the property of the church. He bestowed freedom on slaves after six years of service. Some think he instituted trial by jury. Like Theodosius and Charlemagne, he gave peculiar privileges to the clergy as a counterpoise to the lawlessness of nobles.
One of the peculiarities of his legislation was compensation for crime, seen alike in the Mosaic dispensation and in the old customs of the Germanic nations in their native forests. On conviction, the culprit was compelled to pay a sum of money to the relatives of the injured and another sum to the community at large. This compensation varied according to the rank of the injured party, and rank was determined by wealth. The owner of two hides of land was ranked above a curl, or simple farmer, while the owner of twelve hides was a royal thane. In the compensation for crime, the graduation was curious. Twelve shillings would pay for the loss of a foot, ten for a great toe, and twenty for a thumb. If a man robbed his equal, he was compelled to pay threefold. If he robbed the king, he paid ninefold, and if he robbed the church, he was obliged to return twelvefold. Hence the robbery of ecclesiastical property was attended with such severe penalties that it was unusual. In some cases, theft was punished with death. The Code of Alfred was severe, but in an age of crime and disorder, severity was necessary. He also instituted a vigorous police, and divided the country into counties, and these again into hundreds or parishes, each of which was made responsible for the maintenance of order and the detection of crime. He was severe on judges when they passed sentence irrespective of the rights of jurors. He did not emancipate slaves, but he ameliorated their condition and limited their term of compulsory service. Burglary in the king's house was punished by a fine of one hundred and twenty shillings, in an archbishop's at ninety, in a bishop's or elderman's at sixty, in the house of a man of twelve hides at thirty shillings, in a six-hide man's at fifteen, in a churl's at five shillings, the fine being graded according to the rank of him whose house had been entered. There was a rigorous punishment for working on Sunday. If a Theo, by order of his lord, the lord had to pay a penalty of thirty shillings. If without the lord's order, he was condemned to be flogged. If a free man worked without his lord's order, he had to pay sixty shillings or forfeit his freedom. If a man was found burning a tree in a forest, he was obliged to pay a fine of sixty shillings in order to protect the forest. Or if he cut down a tree under which thirty swine might stand, he was obliged to pay a fine of sixty shillings. These penalties seem severe, but they were inflicted for offenses difficult to be detected and frequently committed. We infer from these various fines that burglary, robbery, petty larcenies, and brawls were the most common offenses against the laws. One of the greatest services which Alfred rendered to the cause of civilization in England was in separating judicial from executive functions. The old earls and eldermen were warriors, and yet to them had been committed the administration of justice, which they often abused, frequently deciding cases against the verdicts of jurors, and sometimes unjustly dooming innocent men to capital punishment. Alfred hanged an elderman, or alderman, one Freeburn, for sentencing Haspen to death when the jury was in doubt. He even hanged twenty-four inferior officers, on whom judicial duties devolved, for palpable injustice. The love of justice and truth was one of the main traits of Alfred's character, and he painfully perceived that the elder men of shires, though faithful and valiant warriors, were not learned and impartial enough to administer justice. There was scarcely one of them who could read the written law, or who had any extensive acquaintance with the common law or the usages which had been in force from time immemorial, as far back as in the original villages of Germany. Moreover, the poor and defenseless had need of protection. They always had needed it, for in pagan and barbarous countries their rights were too often disregarded. When brute force bore everything before it, it became both the duty and privilege of the king, who represented central power, to maintain the rights of the humblest of his people, to whom he was a father. 
to see justice enforced is the most exalted of the prerogatives of sovereigns and no one appreciated this delegation of sovereign power from the universal father more than alfred the most conscientious and truth-loving of all the kings of the middle ages so to maintain justice alfred set aside the ignorant and passionate eldermen and appointed judges whose sole duty it was to interpret and enforce the laws and men best fitted to represent the king in the royal courts they were sent through the shires to see that justice was done and to report the decisions of the county courts thus came into existence the judges of assize an office or institution which remains to this day amid all the revolutions of english thought and life and all the changes which politics and dynasties have wrought nor did alfred rest with a reform of the law courts he defined the boundaries of shires which divisions are very old and subdivided them into parishes which have remained to this day he gave to each hundred its court from which appeals were made to a court representing several hundreds about three to each county each hundred was subdivided into tithings or companies of ten neighboring householders who were held as mutual sureties of frank free pledges for each other's orderly conduct so that each man was a member of a tithing and was obliged to keep household rolls of his servants thus every liegeman was known to the law and was taught his duties and obligations and every tithing was responsible for the production of its criminals and obliged to pay a fine if they escaped every householder was liable to answer for any stranger who might stop at his house this mutual liability for suretyship was the pivot of all Alfred's administrative reform, and wrought a remarkable change in the kingdom, so that merchants and travelers could go about without armed guards. The forests were emptied of outlaws, and confidence and security succeeded distrust and lawlessness. The frank pledge system, which was worked in country districts, was supplied in towns by the machinery of the guilds, institutions combining the benefit of modern clubs, insurance societies, and trades unions. As a rule, they were limited to members of one trade or calling. Mr. Pearson, in his History of England, as quoted by Hughes, thus sums up this great administrative reform for the preservation of life and property and order during the Middle Ages. What is essential to remember is that life and property were not secured to the Anglo-Saxon by the state, but by the loyal union of his fellow citizens. The Saxon guilds are unmatched in the history of their times as evidences of self-reliance, mutual trust, patient self-restraint, and orderly love of law among young people. To recapitulate the reforms of Alfred in the administration of justice and the resettlement of the country, the old divisions of shires were carefully readjusted and divided into hundreds and tithings. The alderman of the shire still remained the chief officer, but the office was no longer hereditary. The king appointed the alderman, or earl, who was president of the shire, gamot, or council, and chief judge of the county court, as well as governor of the shire, but was assisted and probably controlled in his judicial capacity by justices appointed by the king, and not attached to the shire, or in any way dependent on the aldermen. The vice domini, or nominees of the aldermen, were abolished, and an officer substituted for them called the reeve of the shire, or sheriff, who carried out the decrees of the court. The hundreds and tithings were represented by their own officers, and had their hundred courts and courts leet, which exercised a trifling criminal jurisdiction but were chiefly assemblies answering to our grand juries and parish vestries. All householders were members of them, and every man thus became responsible for keeping the king's peace. In regard to the financial resources of Alfred, we know but little. 
Probably they were great, considering the extent and population of the little kingdom over which he ruled, but inconsiderable in comparison with the revenues of England at the present day. To build fortresses, construct a navy, and keep in pay a considerable military force, to say nothing of his own private expenditure and the expense of his court, his public improvements, the endowment of the churches, the support of schools, the relief of the poor, and keeping the highways and bridges in repair, required a large income. This was derived from the public revenues, crown lands, and private property. The public revenue was raised chiefly by customs, tolls, and fines. The crown lands were very extensive, as well as the private property of the sovereign, as he had large estates in every county of his kingdom. But whatever his income, he set apart one quarter of it for religious purposes, one sixth for architecture, and one eighth for the poor, besides a considerable sum for foreigners, whom he liberally patronized. He richly endowed schools and monasteries, he was devoted to the church, and his relations with the Pope were pleasant and intimate, although more independent than those of many of his successors. All the biographers of Alfred speak of his zealous efforts in behalf of education. He established a school for the young nobles of his court, and taught them himself. His teachers were chiefly learned men drawn from the continent, especially from the Franks, and were well paid by the king. He made the scholarly Asser, a Welsh monk, afterwards Bishop of Sherborne, from whose biography of Alfred our best information is derived, his counsellor and friend, and from his instructions acquired much knowledge. To Asser he gave the general superintendence of education, not merely for laymen, but for priests. In his own words he declared that his wish was that all freeborn youth should persevere in learning until they could read the English scriptures. For those who desired to devote themselves to the church, he provided the means for the study of Latin. He gave all his children a good education. His own thirst for knowledge was remarkable, considering his cares and public duties. He copied the prayer book with his own hands, and always carried it in his bosom. Asser read to him all the books which were then accessible. From a humble scholar, the king soon became an author. He translated consolations of philosophy from the Latin of Bothius, a Roman senator of the 6th century, the most remarkable literary effort of the declining days of the Roman Empire, and highly prized in the Middle Ages. He also translated Chronicle of the World by Orosius, a Spanish priest who lived in the early part of the 5th century, a work suggested by St. Augustine's City of God. The ecclesiastical history of Bede was also translated by Alfred. He is said to have translated the Proverbs of Solomon and the Fables of Aesop. His greatest literary work, however, was the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the principal authority of the reign of Alfred. No man of his day wrote the Saxon language so purely as did Alfred himself, and he was distinguished not only for his knowledge of Latin, but for profound philosophical reflections interspersed through his writings which would do honor to a father of the church. He was also a poet inferior only to Cademan. Nor was his knowledge confined to literature alone. It was extended to the arts, especially architecture, shipbuilding, and silver worksmanship. He built more beautiful edifices than any of his predecessors. He also had a knowledge of geography beyond his contemporaries and sent a Norwegian shipmaster to explore the White Sea. He enriched his translation of Orosius by a sketch of the new geographical discoveries in the north. In fact, there was scarcely any branch of knowledge then known in which Alfred was not well instructed, being a remarkably learned man for his age, and as enlightened as he was learned. But in the midst of his reforms and wise efforts to civilize his people, the war clouds gathered once more, and he was obliged to put forth all his energies to defend his realm from the incursions of his old enemies. 
the death of charles the bald in the year 877 left france in a very disordered state and the northmen under hasting one of the greatest of their vikings recommenced their ravages in 893 they crossed the channel in 250 vessels and invaded england followed soon after by hasting with another large detachment and strongly entrenched themselves near winchester alfred at the same time strongly fortified his own position about thirty miles distant and kept so close a watch over the movements of his enemies that they rarely ventured beyond their own entrenchments a sort of desultory warfare succeeded and continued for a year without any decisive results at last the danes getting weary broke up their camps and resolved to pass into east anglia they were met by alfred at farnham and forced to fight which resulted in their defeat and the loss of all the spoils they had taken and all the horses they had brought from france the discomfited danes retreated by means of their ships to an island in the thames at its junction with the colney where they were invested by alfred they would soon have been at the mercy of the saxon king had it not unfortunately happened that the danes on the east coast from essex to northumbria joined the invaders which unlooked for event compelled alfred to raise the blockade and sent ethelred his son to the west where the danes were again strongly entrenched at banfleet near london their camp was successfully stormed and much booty was taken together with the wife and sons of hasting the danish fleet was also captured and some of the vessels were sent to london but hasting still held out in spite of his disaster and succeeded in entrenching himself with the remnants of his army at shubury ten miles from banfleet from which he issued on a marauding expedition along the northern banks of the thames carrying fire and sword wherever he went thence turned northward making no halt until he reached the banks of the severn where he again entrenched himself but was again beaten Hastings saved himself by falling back on a part of East Anglia removed from Alfred's influence and appeared near Chester. Alfred himself had undertaken the task of guarding Exeter and the coasts of Devonshire and South Wales where he wintered, leaving Ethelred to pursue Hastings. Thus a year passed in the successful defense of the kingdom, the Danes having gained no important advantage. At the end of the second campaign, Hastings still maintained his ground and fortified himself on the Thames within twenty miles of London at the close of the third year hasting being driven from his position on the thames established himself in shropshire in the spring of eight ninety seven hasting broke up his last camp on the english soil being foiled at every point and crossed the sea with the remnant of his followers to the banks of the seine the war was now virtually at an end and the danes utterly defeated the work for which Alfred was raised up was at last accomplished. He had stayed the inundations of the Northmen, defended his kingdom of Wessex, and planted the seeds of a higher civilization in England, winning the love and admiration of his subjects. The greatness of Alfred should not be measured by the size of his kingdom. It is not the bigness of a country that gives fame to its illustrious men. The immortal heroes of Palestine and Greece ruled over territories smaller and of less importance than the kingdom of Wessex. It is the greatness of their characters that preserves their name and memory. Alfred died in the year 901, at the age of 52, worn out with disease and labors, leaving his kingdom in a prosperous state, and had it rest under his son Edward for nine years. Then the contest was renewed with the Danes, and it was under the reign of Edward that Mercia was once more annexed to Wessex, as well as Northumbria. Edward died in 925 under the reign of his son, Athelstan, the Saxon kingdom reached still greater prosperity. The completion of the West Saxon realm was reserved for Edmund, son of Athelstan, who ascended to the throne in 940, being a mere boy. 
he was ruled by the greatest statesman of that age, the celebrated Dunstan, abbot of Glastonbury and archbishop of Canterbury, a great statesman and a great churchman, like Hinkmar of Reims. Thus the heroism and patience of Alfred were rewarded by the restoration of the Saxon power, and the absorption of what Mr. Green calls Danelog, after a long and bitter contest of which Alfred was the greatest hero. In surveying his conquests, we are reminded of the long contest which Charlemagne had with the Saxons. Next to Charlemagne, Alfred was the greatest prince who reigned in Europe after the dissolution of the Roman Empire until the Norman Conquest. He fought not for the desire of bequeathing a great empire to his descendants, but to rescue his country from ruin in the midst of overwhelming calamities. It was a struggle for national existence, not military glory. In the successful defense of his kingdom against the ravages of pagan invaders, he may be likened to William the Silent in preserving the nationality of Holland. No European monarch from the time of Alfred can be compared to him in the service he rendered to his country. The memorableness of a war is to be gauged not by the number of the combatants, but by the sacredness of a cause. It was the devotion of Washington to a great cause which embalms his memory in the heart of the world, and no English king has left so hallowed a name as Alfred. It was because he was a benefactor and infused his energy of purpose into a discouraged and afflicted people. How far his saint-like virtues were imitated it is difficult to tell. Religion was the groundwork of his character, faith in God, and devotion to duty. His piety was also more enlightened than the piety of his age, since it was practical and not ascetic. His temper was open, frank, and genial. He loved books and strangers and travelers. There was nothing cynical about him in spite of his perplexities and discouragements. He had a beautifully balanced character and a many-sided nature. He had the power of inspiring confidence in defeat and danger. His judgment and good sense seemed to fit him for any emergency. He had the same control over himself that he had over others. His patriotism and singleness of purpose inspired devotion. He felt his burdens but did not seek to throw them off. Hardship and sorrow, said he, not a king but would wish to be without these if he could, but I know he cannot. So long as I have lived, I have striven to live worthily. I desire to leave to the men that come after me a remembrance of me in good works. These were some of his precious utterances, so that the love which he won a thousand years ago has lingered around his name from that day to this. It was a strong sense of duty, quickened by a Christian life, which gave to the character of Alfred its peculiar radiance. He felt his responsibilities as a Christian ruler. He was affable, courteous, accessible. His body was frail and delicate, but his energies were never relaxed. Pride and haughtiness were unknown in his intercourse with bishops or nobles. He had no striking defects. He was the model of a man and a king, and he left the impress of his genius on all the subsequent institutions of his country. The tree, says Dr. Powley, one of his ablest biographers, which now casts its shadow far and near over the world, when menaced with destruction in its bud, was carefully guarded by Alfred. But at the period when it was ready to burst forth into a plant, he was forced to leave it to the influence of time. Many great men have occupied themselves with the care of this tree, and each one in his own way has advanced its growth. William the Conqueror, with his iron hand, bent the tender branches to his will. Henry II ruled the Saxons with true Roman pride, but in Magna Carta the old German nature became aroused and worked powerfully, even among the barons. It became free under Edward III, that prince so ambitious of conquest, the old language and the old law, the one somewhat altered, the other much softened, opened the path to a new era. 
the nation stood like an oak in the full strength of its leafy maturity and to this strength the reformation is indebted for its accomplishment elizabeth the greatest woman who ever sat upon a throne occupied a central position in a golden age of power and literature then came the stuarts who with their despotic ideas outraged the deeply rooted saxon individuality of the english and by their fall contributed to the sure development of that freedom which was founded so long before the stern cromwell and the astute william the third aided in preparing for the now advanced nation that path in which it has ever since moved the anglo-saxon race has already attained maturity in the new world and founded on these pillars it will triumph in all places and in every age alfred's name will always be placed among those of the great spirits of this earth and so long as men regard their past history with reverence they will not venture to bring forward any other in comparison with him who saved the west saxon nation from complete destruction and in whose heart all the virtues dwelt in such harmonious concord authorities asser's life of alfred the saxon chronicle alfred's own writings Bede's Ecclesiastical History, Thorpe's Ancient Laws and Institutes of England, Kemble's Saxons in England, Sir F. Palgrave's History of the English Commonwealth, Sharon Turner's History of the Anglo-Saxons, Green's History of the English People, Dr. Powley's Life of Alfred, Alfred the Great by Thomas Hughes, Freeman, Pearson, Hume, Spellman, Knight, and other English historians may be consulted. End of section 2